Amen. Take a Bible, find 1 John chapter 2 and 3. It's going to be our passage this morning. There's notes in the bulletin you can track along with some of the things we're going to talk about. I've got to admit, one of the things I kind of like about uh, social distancing and red rose and blue rose is that some of you end up sitting in new seats, and uh, that's good for you. And when I look out there and I see you at times, I think, oh, that's not where they sit. And it kind of makes me laugh, but it kind of bothers me because then I start to think about it. And I think the McKays don't sit on the back wall, but they're sitting on the back wall. And that particular reality kind of makes me feel safer than having the McKays on the second row. I've got a little bit of a buffer between me and the McKays, which is not a bad thing. I love the McKays. All right, First John chapter 2. One of the things I've told you about First John over the last couple of weeks is that Bible scholars have a hard time agreeing about the structure of the book of First John. Uh, when you read, for example, the Gospels or the book of Acts, it's pretty straightforward. There's a beginning to the story, there's a middle to the story, there's a conclusion to the story. And you kind of get a feel for the direction that that story is going. When you read Paul's letters, Paul tends to write in a very structured orderly way. And so he starts off with a greeting and then he moves into some theology and then he moves into application and then he brings it all to a close and you sort of get a feel for how that letter is structured. When you read the book of First John, you almost feel like you're going in circles. John starts off and he'll be talking about something and then he moves on and you think, okay, we've covered that, we're moving in a new direction and then before long, John's back to the same ideas and the same concepts and he's revisiting these things over and over and over again. It's not bad writing, it's just a particular style of writing. In fact, it's a helpful style of writing for people like me who tend to be forgetful because John keeps coming back and he's saying, now don't forget this. I already said it once, but I'm going to say it again. You need to remember this. I need to remind you of this. And as he revisits these ideas, he tends to expand on them, and he tends to make them more full in our understanding. When you read the book, at times you feel like you've been thrown into the deep end of the theological pool, especially in this passage, right? What's true of the book as a whole is true of this passage where John just kind of feels like he's moving in circles over and over again, and our minds, our Western minds, want a straight line from A to B, and John's kind of taking a meandering route to get from A to B. And when you read a book like that, you read a book like First John, you need to slow down, and you need to think about it, and you need to meditate on it a little bit. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind and trying to just focus on some meaningless mantra Biblical meditation is filling your mind with the words of Scripture, and that's what you need to do when you come to a book like 1 John. Slow down, think about it, and so we're going to try to do that this morning. We'll start with some some basic terminology, some basic pieces of the, the passage that will help us make sense of it. The word abide shows up in 1 John 2.28. It's a linking word to what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about abiding in the truth about Jesus, 
the truth about Jesus abiding in us. You see that word in verse 28. It's just a connecting word, and it reminds us that what we're talking about this morning is not completely distinct from what we talked about last week. At the end of our passage, 1 John 3, 10, there's the social test. We've talked about this already. The question in the social test is, do you love your brother? That's going to be the emphasis of next week's passage. And again, it's a reminder that what we're talking about this morning is not completely disjointed from what we see in the next group of verses. One of the words I want to point out to you is the word devil. John uses the word devil four times in this passage. Literally, that word means accuser or slanderer, right? It's somebody who is speaking against another person. And in other places, John refers to the devil as Satan, the prince of this world, and the evil one. In the Gospel of John, in the book of Revelation, he uses other titles. Here it's devil, and it's the only time that the devil makes an appearance in the book of 1 John, and so I think it's worth pointing that out. Let me remind you of the big purpose of 1 John. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know this by now, but it's worth saying over and over and over again. John wrote this letter so that believers could have certainty about their relationship with Jesus. He is not writing. He did not write this letter to convince you to believe in Jesus. That's the purpose, the stated purpose of the gospel of John. The stated purpose of the letter of 1 John is to help those of you who believe to find assurance and confidence and certainty about your relationship with Jesus. And to that end, you see it in 1 John 5.13. It just sort of summarizes the whole thing. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. How do we know? Well, John gives us tests. There's a number of tests in this book. Last week, we talked about the Christological test. It's a doctrinal test. It's a theological test. Are you abiding in the truth about Jesus, and is the truth about Jesus abiding in you? At the end of this passage, verse 10, leading into next week, we see the social test, and we've already seen it in 1 John. Do you love your brother? Do you love other believers in the faith? This morning we're talking about the moral test. We've called it the ethical test. We've called it the obedience test. We saw it in 1 John 2, 1 to 6. And now John is circling around, and he talks about it again, and he expands the playing field a little bit. He gives us a a fuller, more broad picture of what this test actually involves. So here's the big idea of the passage. This is my attempt to sort of corral all that we're about to read into one idea. The overall direction of our lives is going to be marked by righteousness or lawlessness, will reveal whether or not we have been born again. And the question in these verses is, have you been born again? If you've been born again, then you pass this test. How do you know that you've been born again? Well, it's the overall direction of your life, marked by either righteousness or lawlessness. That sort of summarizes what we're going to talk about this morning. So look in your copy of the Scriptures. We're going to read our passage. It begins in 1 John chapter 2 goes through chapter 3, verse 10. The scripture says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, 
you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you this morning for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who has spoken to us. Father, your word is true. Your word is our authority. Your word is sufficient for life and for godliness, for equipping us and preparing us for every good work. Father, we thank you for a book in the scriptures, the book of 1 John that is written to give us confidence and assurance and certainty about where we stand with you. And Lord, I pray this morning for your people, people who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that they would experience and know the kind of certainty that John is is writing about. And Father, I pray for those who maybe don't pass this test. And Lord, I pray that you would show them their great need for Jesus and their need to be born again. Father, we pray that you would be honored this morning and we pray in your name. Amen. A few weeks ago, we talked about John Newton. I just want to mention him again this morning. John Newton was a slave trader. He was converted to faith in Jesus, and his conversion was pretty radical. Uh, the change in his life was, was pretty extreme. He went from a, a crude, crass slave trader to somebody who wrote hymns and somebody who preached the gospel and somebody who fought for the abolition of slavery. I shared with you this quote a few weeks ago. We were sort of talking about spiritual growth Newton said, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I once was, and it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. That's a familiar quote, especially that last line. You hear people say that often. I want to share with you another quote from Newton. I came across this quote in my study this week. Newton said, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. 
And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. I like that quote. There's sort of a a self-deprecating humility that comes across in that statement where Newton is sort of acknowledging that he's not the final arbiter about who's going to be in heaven or not in heaven, and he just admits there's going to be some surprises there. There's going to be some folks that I'm looking around to find them. I thought they'd be there, and they're not there, and there's going to be some other folks that I say, well, what in the world? Look at you. You're here. I didn't expect that. He sort of admits uh, with this word if at the very beginning, right? He sort of admits that he doesn't presume to have earned or deserved a place in heaven. Uh, There's just sort of a a humility in display on that quote that I think is, is endearing to us when we read about what he has to say here. At the same time, I do not think that God intends for his people to live with a big if, if I get there. Is, is it possible I am or I'm not, and you wonder and you wrestle and you doubt and, and you're concerned about it? To be fair, John Newton did not believe that God wanted his people to wrestle with that big if. He's just sort of trying to make a point about we're not the final arbiters of who ends up in heaven. Newton knew that in the Bible there are promises gospel promises that give us certainty and assurance about our salvation. He read the book of 1 John. He knew that God put a book in the Bible that is intended to give us certainty and assurance about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And John just lays out these tests, the doctrinal test, the social test we'll come back to next week, and this morning, the moral test. The moral test, and we're talking about the overall direction of our lives being an indication of whether or not we have been born again. So we've talked about the moral test once. As John is circling back to it, we sort of see a fuller picture of what this test entails for us. So the question is this. In 1 John 2, 28 to 310, how does he add to our understanding of the moral test? Here's the first thing John would have us to know. Apart from God's grace, we all practice sin, we are guilty of lawlessness, and we are devilish. It's a good vocabulary word for the day, devilish. This is who we are apart from God's grace. People who practice sin, people who are guilty of lawlessness, which we're going to talk about, and people who are, believe it or not, devilish. Look what John says in verse 4, 1 John 3 verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Well, who is it, according to the Bible, that is guilty of committing sin? Paul says it's all of us. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We're all guilty of sin. John says those of us who practice sinning practice lawlessness. And then he makes it very clear. It's clear in the first half of the verse, and then he makes it more clear, he says sin is lawlessness. What does he mean when he says sin is lawlessness? You could look at a lot of different places in Scripture. I think a very helpful verse is Leviticus 26, and I'm going to put it on the screen. Leviticus 26, God is warning his people about the danger of disobedience. And specifically, he's talking about the Sabbath day. And he says this, God speaking to his people, the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths. If you don't keep this law, 
this is the consequence. The land will be abandoned. I will give it a Sabbath. It will be desolate without you. You will make amends for your iniquity. Why is all this going to happen? Because they spurned my rules and their soul, here it is, their soul abhorred my statutes. This is the idea of lawlessness. It is not only that sin makes you a lawbreaker. It's that deep within our hearts there is an abhorring, a hatred, a disdain for the law itself. That's what God's saying to his people. The problem is not just that you're not going to keep the Sabbath. The problem is that you hate the idea that there is a Sabbath to keep. We see this on display in our world regularly. People who not only violate a law, break a law, but they resent the fact that the law even exists and that behind the law there is some kind of authority that would enforce that law. That's what John's talking about on a spiritual level. He says your sin is not just crossing a boundary, not just breaking a law, it's actually lawlessness. It's actually rooted in a heart that has hatred for the law itself and by implication for the one who gave it. John Calvin explains it like this in his commentary on 1 John. He says, John, the author of 1 John, John means simply to teach us that sin arises from a contempt of God and that by sinning, the law is violated. Yes, when you sin, you violate the law. You break the law. But at the root of that, what's going on in your heart? It's a contempt of God. It's a hatred for the lawgiver. It's a disdain and an abhorring of the law itself. John says more, as if that were not enough. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Our sin is rooted in a hatred of God's law and a hatred of the God who gave it. And our sinning makes us devilish. It makes us like the devil himself. That's a horrific picture that John is painting. And if it's true, it's really bad news and it puts us in a whole heap of trouble. John's saying... You're sinful people. We're sinful people. Our sin is rooted in a heart that is lawless, meaning there's a hatred for the law itself and for the lawgiver. And our sin makes us like the devil. That's bad news. We need good news. John gives it to us. Here's the second thing he would have us to see about this test. Jesus appeared, that's the word that John uses, he appeared to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. That word, he appeared, is talking about the incarnation. It's talking about Christmas. It's talking about God taking the form of a human being. It's God becoming man, right? It's the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And John says, that happened, he appeared to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. Look at verse 5 in 1 John 3. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. I've thought about that verse all week long. As I've read the passage, there's a lot of interesting verses in this passage. This is the one that's just been rolling in my head. He appeared in order to take away sins. 
If you live in town, and I don't mean this town, I just mean in town, if you're a city slicker, I think one of the things that you and I tend to take for, uh, for granted is trash pickup. That's a great service. All you got to do is haul the bag out to the alley, set it out on the curb, roll the little trash thing out to the sidewalk, however it works in your neighborhood, and a couple of times a week it just magically is taken away. You don't have to think about it ever again. It's gone. You don't have to worry about it. If there's ever a day where there's a holiday on a trash day and they don't come by and take it, you realize how nice this service is. Right? The trash starts to pile up. Or maybe it's Christmas and you go to take the trash out and the dumpster is filled with all of my kids' cardboard from all their presents. And you say, where am I supposed to put this trash? What am I supposed to do with this? I need somebody to come and just take it away. I don't want to deal with it. John says the reason Jesus appeared was to take away our trash, to take away our sin. What is sin? It's lawlessness. It's a hatred for God. It's something that makes us devilish. And Jesus came to take it away. He didn't just haul it away to some landfill and bury it under the ground. He took it to the cross. Look what we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 26. As it is, he appeared, same word, he appeared once for all. Author of Hebrews is talking about time. He came once, one time for all time. He's not coming back to do this. He appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Why? To put away sin. Same idea, to take it away, to put away sin. And how did he do it? By the sacrifice of of himself. If you'll look at 1 John 3, verse 5, John says he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him, underline this, in him there is no sin. He had no sin to die for. So in dying, he takes our sin, and he takes it away. John adds to this, if you look at verse 8, he came to take away sin, Look what else he says, verse 8, about halfway through. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I think popular culture tends to inoculate us with the idea that Jesus came. Why did he come? To, to spread love and good vibes and happiness and niceness and kindness and all of these things. John says... Well, really, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy something, to tear it down, to destroy the works of the devil. In the Vietnam War, there was a military tactic that became popular. It was called seek and destroy or sometimes search and destroy. It was the idea that we are going to look intently for the enemy. And when we find the enemy, we'll use overwhelming force to kill the enemy. In a different type of application, you could say Jesus came to seek and destroy, to search and destroy. Slightly different than Vietnam War. Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. And he came to destroy the works of the devil. Not with overwhelming force. 
not with guns ablazing, not with the armies of heaven at his side, but by dying on a cross. He had no sin, so he destroys the works of the devil by taking our sin and taking it away. Here's the third thing John would have us to see. We're thinking about the moral test. God's love is the basis for our new birth. We've got to be born again, and the basis for that, the the support for that, the cause of that is God's love. Look at 1 John 3, verse 1. John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. If you like to make notes in your Bible, I think you ought to circle the word see. This is an easy word to skip over. It's one of the very few imperatives, one of the very few commands in the book of 1 John. When John says, see, he's sort of grabbing you by the spiritual shirt collar and pulling you close and saying, you better see this, right? Look at this. Pay attention to this. We do this all the time. I hope you don't do it by grabbing people by the shirt collar, but we do this all the time with our cell phones, Right? You're on your cell phone, you're scrolling through social media, you see something funny or amusing or outrageous or whatever, and you lean over to your buddy and you say, Hey, have you seen this? You stick it in their face. Look at this. Can you believe that? Maybe you've been out of town, you saw your kids, grandkids, whatever, and you've got pictures or videos of your kids or your grandkids. No one else is all that interested, but you're fascinated, and you pull your friends aside and you say, would you look at this? Have you ever seen anybody cuter in your whole life? Look at that. Can you believe my grandbaby can take five steps? It's amazing. Maybe you're on social media, you're looking at Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, whatever kind of little dopey thing you like for looking at dopey little videos, and you see one that you think is funny, and you say, I got to send this to my friends, or I got to tag somebody in it, or I got to post this. What you're saying is to everyone, look at this. I want you to see this. That's what John is doing in 1 John 3, 1. It has nothing to do with your cell phone. It has everything to do with the love of God. John says, this is something you have to see. you got to look at this. Don't miss it. You've got to pay attention to this. And here's what he wants you to see. He wants you to see what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's the kind of love that results in us being called children of God. Us. Sinners. Lawless. Devilish being called God's children. That's a remarkable love. I want you to see something. I took a picture this week while I was studying for 1 John right out of a commentary. There's not a lot of opportunities for my inner accountant to come out and to put a bar graph in a sermon, uh, but this is a good opportunity to do it. Okay, I'm reading through this commentary, and this guy says, hey, I want you to see, and now I want you to see, how often the Bible uses the word love. And so he just puts it in this graph. And down at the bottom, I know it's small, but that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way through Revelation across the bottom, all the books of the New Testament. And then the lines going up on the bar graph are how many times that book of the Bible uses the word love. And I just think it's fascinating. You look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then all of a sudden you jump up, John. 
And John has so much to say about love, more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke all combined. And then you move to Acts, and Luke was not feeling very loving when he wrote the book of Acts. There's not anything in there about it. He just, he said all he needed to say in Luke, and there's nothing there. And you bop along, and there's some, some good, good numbers showing up. But then you get to the end, and that big tall line, the tallest line on the whole graph is 1 John. It's one of the shortest books in the whole Bible. And in this very short book, John just keeps talking about it over and over and over again. This was an idea, this was a truth that captivated John's heart. Right? It caught his attention and he could not let it go. He could not quit thinking about it. In fact, as he's writing, he just stops and he says, command imperative, see this, look at this, pay attention to this. God has love for sinners, for people who have broken the law, people who have hatred for the law and the one who gave the law, people who, because of our sin, are devilish in nature. God, in his grace and his mercy, loves sinners. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. It's unearned. And it's a love put into action, and the end result of that action is that you and I, the people of God, are called his children. And he says we are his children. We're not just called his children, we are his children. It's not just a word game. It's not like he's just using a new title for us. He's actually made us his children. How did that happen? We had to be born into his family. We had to be born again. God's love is the foundation of that. Why is John talking about this when he's talking about the moral test for assurance of our salvation? He wants us to understand who we are. He wants us to understand what Jesus has done for us. And he wants us to understand that the foundation for all of it is not you or me. It's God and it's his love. Here's the fourth truth. Thinking about the moral test, those who have been born again will abide in Jesus and practice righteousness. You've been born again, John says, you abide in Jesus and you practice righteousness. This is a a drumbeat that runs all the way through our passage. John just keeps coming back to it and hitting it over and over and over again. He circles back to it, as is his style, over and over and over again. Look at verse 29. You know that he is righteous... If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Practicing righteousness is the mark of people who have been born of God. Look what he says in verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That idea of purifying ourselves is connected with righteousness. If you hope in him, you purify yourself in him. Look what he says in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. If you're abiding in Jesus, you will not keep on sinning. That will not be the overall pattern of your life. And then he flips it. And he says, no one who keeps on sinning has seen him or known him. If that is the overall pattern of your life, you fail the moral test. You don't pass. You can't have assurance. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. All right, it's an 
an ongoing activity. It's something that you're practicing, something that you're living out. It's a direction that your life is heading. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. If you've been born of God, that's not going to be the overarching direction of your life. God's seed abides in you. You can't keep on sinning. Why? Because you've been born of God. Verse 10, here's how it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. He just hits it over and over and over again. And he hits it so strongly that you and I may walk away saying, whew, sounds like I better be good. Sounds like I better be perfect. Man, if I slip up or mess up, there goes my certainty. There goes my assurance. There goes my confidence. Don't forget what John says in 1 John 1 9. You got to read the whole book together. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John knows we sin, he knows. He knows we struggle with sin. He knows that we have to confess sin. And he says, look, when you sin, you confess it, you agree with God about it, you turn from it, you acknowledge it, and he forgives you. He says in the very next verse, if we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar. Of course we sin. Confess it. God forgives it. Here, what John is saying is that when you have been born again, When there is new life at work within you, the direction of your life changes away from lawlessness and towards righteousness. Here's the last thing that John has to say to us. Those who have been born again will have confidence when Jesus appears a second time. Remember, he appeared once to take away sin. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. John says he's going to appear Again, 1 John 2, 28, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence, boldness. We may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Look what he says in chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears. It's going to happen. And when it happens, we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. He's going to appear again. We're going to see him as he truly is. And when we see him, we'll be like him. Not in that we'll be equal to him, but that we'll be pure and righteous as he is pure and righteous. Throughout the centuries, theologians have referred to this moment Jesus appearing and God's people seeing him. Theologians have called this the beatific vision. Beatific vision. Jesus will appear again and we will see him as he is. And in seeing him, we'll be made like him. These theologians who talk about it and write about it, and many artists have tried to paint it and depict it in art. What they're saying to us, what they're trying to remind us is that this is our truest and most ultimate hope. Sometimes we talk about heaven and eternal life and we say, man, the the mansions are going to be great. Can't wait for my mansion. 
Sometimes we talk about the, the streets of gold and the, the depictions of the new Jerusalem in Revelation. We say, man, I can't wait to be in that city. Sometimes we think about a reunion with loved ones. We talked about that yesterday at a memorial service for a 13-year-old boy, and there's certainly something very real in that. We say, I'm longing for a day of reunion. But the true hope and the ultimate hope is not a, a reunion with people who have gone before us. It's not a city and streets of gold and mansions. It's Jesus appearing and God's people seeing him as he is. And in seeing him, we're made like him. Everything in this passage hinges on the idea of birth, being born again. In our family, we have four kids. Two of them were born in Kentucky, so we call them hillbillies. One of them was born in Oklahoma, so we call her a, an oaky or a redneck or unfortunate. I'm just kidding. One of them is a true American patriot born in the Republic of Texas. And as proof for all of that, I have at home in my closet birth certificates. Two from Kentucky, one from Oklahoma, one from Hector County. Birth certificates. And every now and then, you know if you have kids, you have to get the birth certificate out. You take them to school. This is a strange thing to me. Your child is right there beside you. And yet you have to present a birth certificate as proof that the child was really born. Like, here they are. Proof. It really happened. You're not going to take my word for it, so here's proof. And if you ever question it, you pull out a birth certificate and you say, ah, it did happen. The question in 1 John is not about physical birth, where you were born, what state is on your birth certificate. It's not about any of that. The question is about new birth, being born again. And the question in the, in the book as a whole is, how do you know? How do you know if you have been born again? It's a non-negotiable aspect to seeing the kingdom of God. It's something that every person who wants to spend eternity with God must experience, new birth. How do you know if it's happened to you or not? Well, on a human level, we come up with all sorts of silly tests and we tell people, well, have you done this or have you done that? Have you said this? Have you prayed that? John gives us a different set of tests and one of them is this moral test. It begins by confessing who you are apart from God's grace. Sinner, guilty of lawlessness, devilish. It requires a recognition of Jesus appearing to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. It involves believing that Jesus not only appeared once, but that he will appear again. And when he appears again, we'll see him, we'll be made like him. It requires an honest assessment of the overall direction of your life. What is it headed towards? Is it headed towards lawlessness and a hatred for the law and a hatred for the God who gave it? Or by God's grace and by virtue of the new birth, are you headed in a different direction, a new direction, the direction of righteousness? That's the test. 
We talked about it in this big idea. The overall direction of our lives marked by either righteousness or lawlessness will reveal whether or not we have been born again.